This is Jay Navarro from the Suicide Machines, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And on the show this week, we've got Brent Rambler from August Burns Red, and we cover everything. The band's origins in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They're not one, but two Grammy Award nominations. We talk about the ceremony and what going to that is like. They've got a new LP coming out this week, this Friday called Death Below. It's got a guest spot from Jesse Leach of Kill Switch Engage, who I love. I love the songs I've heard so far. It's a great conversation. I love it, and you're going to love it. And you're going to hear that shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Five-star reviews. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Did you know that you can write a review in Apple Podcasts? Did you know that? If you write a nice review, I'll read it on the air. And shirts. The new scene has a fine selection of shirts over at Death Wish Inc. Head over there, pick one up. It's getting warmer out. You're going to need some new t-shirts. Come on. And don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Iodine is very excited to announce they have signed Florida hardcore band... Horsewhip. Horsewhip feature members of Reversal of Man and Combat Wounded Veteran. Horsewhip bring their own brutal brand of dark hardcore that combines elements of crust punk, metal, and hardcore. Iodine is premiering a new track from Horsewhip. It's called Buried, and it's from their forthcoming LP, which will be out later this year. Great band. Make sure you check it out. Also, Iodine has a new vinyl subscription service called Noise Cult. If you sign up, you can get the next six Iodine releases on a rare vinyl variant. Only 24 spots remain in the Noise Cult, so you better sign up soon, because once it's done, it's done. That's it. For more information, head to iodinerecordings.com or the Iodine Instagram at iodinerecordings. And last but certainly not least, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Bridge Nine Records. Every band ever has been on Bridge Nine, and for good reason. It's a fantastic label. I mean, come on, sick of it all. Newfound Glory, The Hope Conspiracy, Iron Sheik, you name it, they've been on Bridge Nine. Have you been to the record store yet? You really should go. It's at 282 Rantoul Street in Beverly, Massachusetts. It's open every Wednesday through Sunday, starting at 11 a.m. And Chris is there a lot of the time. Chris Wren himself from Bridge Nine Records. You can ask him about the label. You can ask him what his favorite podcast is. I have a feeling he will say it's the new scene. I mean, he should anyway. Come on, what are we doing here? Also, Bridge9 is doing record auctions on Instagram. 
Follow the account at B9 Auctions. The bidding takes place in the comments of the post. You can get your hands on some rare Bridge 9 vinyl without even having to go to the store. For more information, check out bridge9.com. That's bridge the number 9.com or head to their Instagram at bridge9. That's bridge n i n e. Okay, so make sure you check back in with me in segment 3. We'll talk new music, we'll talk the Last of Us finale, we'll talk about some other stuff that I'm up to. We'll cover it all. But right now, we are going to speak to Brent Rambler of August Burns Red. And listen, during this interview, you'll hear a little background noise. Brent was on tour, he had a day off, and he had to do the interview from the lobby of his hotel. But listen, cut us a break. It's a great interview, and the noise dies down a little bit after the 20-minute mark, so don't worry about it. It's good. Enjoy. We are here now with Brent Rambler. Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here, Brent. You know, August Burns Red have been going strong for, I guess, 20 years now. Yep. And uh, you've got a new record, Death Below, coming out soon in March. And we're going to cover all of that, Brent. But first, let me ask you, how are you doing today? Good, good. We just have an off day in El Paso, Texas. And... Unfortunately, it's unbelievably windy here today. We usually do an off day here and we go play top golf, but it's like 70 mile an hour gusts today and like dust storms. So I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> 70 mile per hour gusts. Are you yeah. kidding me? No. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> How long has the tour been going on? Uh, we've been out for about two weeks. How's it going so far? Great. Uh, great. It's our biggest headline tour that we've ever done. So we're excited about that. Biggest headline tour ever. Yeah. That is pretty amazing. So uh, who's uh, supporting you on this one? Uh, we have the Devil Wears Prada um, and then a band from Scotland called Bleed From Within. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to rebook uh, the Devil Wears Prada on the show. So let them know I'm looking for them. Okay. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> I uh, I had them booked and then I got COVID and, you know, oh, it just no. didn't happen. Yeah. 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 It happens. But uh, Brent, it's great to have you here. You know, uh, August Burns Red have been doing 
their thing for a long time now. I, I guess you got started in around 2003, right? Yep. Yeah, we started in, pretty much started playing together in March of 2003. Are you were originally from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, around there? Um, yeah, three of us are from Lancaster. One of us is from Maryland, and then another of us um, is from South Carolina. So tell me about growing up in Lancaster. Now, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we had like a whole scene going in Bucks County, and right. then we discovered the Philadelphia scene and all that. But tell me about Lancaster. Like, uh, were you always interested in music? Is it something you always wanted to do? Um, I mean, I didn't really get into music until probably my teens. I got really into music. And, um, you know, there was always stuff to do in our area. And we actually had a really good local music scene. Um, by the time I was in junior high, there was a lot of local concerts, local bands and things like that. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty hopping to be honest. And then I got into heavy music in high school and then it really just kind of blossomed from there into that being like the music that I wanted to listen to. And then I finally got a guitar when I was like 16 or 17 and started playing then. Yes. I remember Lancaster being a pretty good scene. I can't remember any of the venue names, but I remember being out there semi-often for hardcore shows. Yeah, I mean, we would have them in just like VFW halls all over the place. Like we would just rent them out and play there. And, you know, we would invite other bands from all over to come play us, come play with us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was kind of growing pretty pretty quickly. So when you're learning to play guitar, do you just learn by ear? Or are you taking lessons? Because, you know, going through the band's discography and revisiting the 2003 debut again, it, it just sounds super polished, like everybody is just on point. Yeah, I mean, it. you know, we all kind of learned on our own. No one really took lessons much uh, when we first started. And everyone just kind of plays by ear. Uh, for a long time, our our bass player Dustin, and now he has a lot of guitar stuff too. He's the one who knows the most about music and actually understands like music theory. The rest of us don't really do it. So, talk about discovering hardcore punk rock. What was your entry point, and how did you discover it? Um, I started listening to like bands like Thursday, and then from there it kind of went into like Poison the Well, and that's what really kind of got me into metal music. And um, you know, I listened to punk before that, like Mill and Colin and like Saves a Day and things like that um, prior. And then I still do uh, listen to that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, you know, it started and then just progressively got more and more aggressive, I guess. That makes sense. Yeah. Around what year was this? Um, probably like in junior high, probably like 1999, you know, 2000 is when I really started to listen to music like that. Yeah, same here. I think 98 is when I got started. The Poison the Well opposite of December came out in 99. That had a huge impact. And then I think Thursday Full Collapse was a year or two later. So, there, I mean, there was just a ton going on at that time. Yeah, there was. It was great. So when did you start playing? Uh, were you in bands before August Burns Red? No, no, this is my first and only band ever. Wow. Right. First and only band ever. Yep. So I, you must feel pretty lucky that you knocked it out of the park on the first go around. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it it was a lot of luck, that is for sure. Uh, talk about the beginning of the band. How did we meet? How did we come together? What did we want to accomplish? Um, you know, we, we all met uh, through mutual friends. Uh, JB and I were friends in school. And then we met our drummer, Matt, through mutual friends. And, uh, you know, and the two other like first original members, Matt was friends with our bass player, Jordan, and I was friends with our singer, John. And then, so we just kind of grew up together a little bit. And then 
got together and played some cover songs for fun and then started writing a little bit and just jamming together. And that was kind of that. And then, you know, uh, John quit pretty quickly. And then Josh McManus joined the band. And then uh, he did the first full length with us. And then he was like, this just isn't for me touring wise. So he left. And then uh, Space Player Jordan thought the same thing. He was like a year into touring. And he's like, this is just too much for me. So he left, um, you know, and then Dustin and Jake stepped in pretty early on in early 2006. So where did you play uh, early on? Did you play in Philly a lot? Not really. Um, we would play like, the outskirts a lot. There's a couple like, like I said, like VFW halls that were outside the area in like Phoenixville and places like that. And then uh, so we did that a good bit. And, you know, eventually we got into Philly and started playing, played a couple shows at the church, you know, but. But we weren't really much of a Philly band like to start out. You know, that wasn't our place to play actually in Philly. Was it hard to get shows in Philly? Because, you know, from growing up, I mean, I wasn't in bands until later, but I just remember it being hard to get shows in Philly for a lot of heavier bands. There was like a hardcore purist thing going on. Like uh, if you didn't pass the litmus test, you couldn't play it. It was hard to get in there. It was just, you know, I think it was just a place that actually had real venues to play. Like once you got into Philly and at that level for us, we weren't, you know, playing real venues. Like we didn't know the promoters in Philadelphia to put us on as the local opener. And, you know, I look at it now and having a local opener on a show is extremely rare. Like it doesn't happen much. It only really does happen in smaller towns. Like at this, I couldn't tell you the last time we had a local opener play one of our tour dates. So like, I think that once you get into more real venues, which is what Philly had, it just got really difficult to get in there and actually be on a show that wasn't just like some kind of local band thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's mostly packaged tours now. Rarely does a band go through the trouble of like finding a local opener in each of the cities. Yeah. I mean, that just doesn't, that just doesn't happen anymore. The, the, yeah. I don't know how much like actually playing locally even happens anymore. You know, I think with the rise of social media, you know, you put your music on the internet and you hope it does well, you know? Um, yeah. There's not really that whole like grind it out at your local venues uh, mentality anymore. So as the band is gaining steam, you have the first record out and uh, Josh ends up leaving. Josh, the original singer ends up leaving after the first tour, I think that was, what was that in around 2006? Yeah, he left and he left at the very end of 2005. Um, he pretty much left as the record was coming out. So it worked out kind of well for us because he only did one tour. So most people thought that Jake was the original vocalist and who was on that record. So, you know, it, it, it ended up panning out okay. Okay. So yeah, the timing. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were nervous because, you know, you have this record out and things are just getting going. But it sounds like the timing worked out so that, you know, someone else could step in and you didn't take too much of a hit. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much is exactly what happened. We just, you know, found a good replacement pretty quickly. Um, got lucky in that aspect. How do you find the replacement? Did you know the new singer? No, not at all. Um it just kind of word spread that we were looking for a singer and he contacted me on MySpace, um, sent over like a demo and then he came up like a couple of days later and 
played with us in practice and his voice sounded good. And then we had told him like we had already lined up a singer to do a short run of tours, a short run of shows that we had. And so we're like, hey, we're going to have this guy come because we already said that he could do it. Um, But after that, like you can for sure come out and give it a shot. And so that's kind of what happened. And then, you know, in February, March, she started playing with us in 2006. So how do you decide between the two singers? You have the guy lined up for the shows and then you have your new singer. It was, the, I guess, the newer one just uh, worked out better with everybody. Yeah, I think, you know, when he came in to like sing and try out, we kind of knew his voice was more what we were looking for. But we had already yeah. told the first guy that, yeah, you can come do this tour with us. So we didn't want to like, you know, take that away from him. Um, But we kind of knew just coming in that, you know, Jake was going to be probably the guy moving forward for a little while anyway. Okay, so once the debut record is out, you've got Jake, the new singer in. I mean, how quickly do you see things picking up? Are you just are you doing full U.S. tours at this point? Yeah, I mean, we kind of hit the ground running. We were doing full U.S. tours with like that band Project 86. Uh, We did some with the Chariot. We just did, you know, we... We just kind of really just went for it. And then in 2007, 2008 is when things really started to move for us. And we were just kind of touring 10 months out of the year and going and going and going. So 2007, 2008, that's end of MySpace, beginning of Facebook era. Uh, How do you see uh, things are going well? I guess CDs are still selling a lot at this point, right? Yeah, pretty much CDs are selling at that point. And, you know, you're not seeing, there's no streaming yet. And so... We're just seeing CD sales and, you know, we're seeing our followers and socials grow and crowds are getting better and better at that point. And uh, now you've at this point, I guess you've been doing the band for like four years, five years. Is this the only thing you're doing at this point? Yeah. I mean, we like I said, we were probably hitting the road 10 months out of the year. So there was, you know, there wasn't time for anything else. And most of us were lucky enough. Well, all of us were lucky enough to live at home. Uh, with our parents pretty much. So we didn't really have to worry about rent or anything like that. And, you know, so we kind of got lucky in that, in that aspect for sure. Like not having to depend on the band for bills at that point, because obviously they wouldn't really have been covering them then yet. Is being in a band and touring, is that what you wanted to do? Is that what you had in mind or is this just kind of what happened? Um, Yeah. Most of us dropped out of, well, yeah, most of us dropped out of college to pursue it. So it was definitely at that point what we wanted to do at least, you know, for the short term, you know, I remember my parents just saying, like, you can always come back to college. You're not always going to have this opportunity. So we, you know, made that leap and said, yeah, this is what we want to do. And it just kept going and going and going from there. That's good that they said that to you, you know, because usually it's the other way around. Like, what the hell are you doing? You, you have to finish college before you do this thing. Right, right. I think, you know, like I had gone to college in Tennessee at the university called Middle Tennessee State University because they had a music business management program there. They're one of the only places in the country that had one. And so I went there for my first semester and I remember walking in like literally the first day, the professor in the like first like actual music business course of my day was a room of like 400 people. And he's like, you guys are one of 10 classes in this program. And after your sophomore year, only 10% of you will be picked to move on in the program. And we were just like, uh, I, re- I remember talking to a lot of people who like that day were literally like, well, I'm not going to continue on. I'm going to go home or I'm going to do something else because no one, no one ever told us that like in orientation and anything, no one ever said that. And I'm just like, uh, you know, I'm not spending, you know, 20 grand a year on my college education on a dice roll, hoping that I am 
in the top 10% out of 4,000 students. <laughs> like, I was just like, nah. So I ended up just, I ended up transferring home after that semester. And I think my parents were annoyed by that whole process too. And they were just kind of like, you know, go do what you want. Cause you know, we tried college and it kind of screwed us over at first. Yeah. College didn't work out for me either. I, uh, well, I guess I could have tried harder, but I didn't know what I was doing. I picked the wrong classes. I wanted to be doing something in music, but I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it all, it all just didn't work out. But it's good that you had the foresight to see, I don't know, that maybe this thing isn't going to work out. Maybe it could be a waste of money and you've got the music thing going. So why not just go for that? Right. Yeah. That's kind of how we all felt. I, I felt like kind of, you know, I switched to my major to psychology when I came back home to a school close to home. And I was like, is this actually what I want to be doing? And, you know, it just kind of seemed like I'd much rather be playing music at that, you know, at that point, you know, I, I'd much rather be doing this. Like this seemed like, I love this. I want to do this. So yeah. And the parents were really supportive. And so yeah, we went for it. So the band is continuing to tour. You're on solid state at this point, right? Yep. So how's it working out on that label for you guys at that time? Good. I mean, it was, it just happened to to be that they were the label we wanted to be on. And they were the only label that actually sent us an offer. You know, we, we made demos, we sent them out. Um, we were at that point selling out our local venues and on our own. And so we just kind of were happy to be there. Um, and like I said, just coincidence that it, it, it all worked out that it was the label we wanted to be on was the only one that sent us an offer. And they treated us well, um, made us a priority. Um, but that, you know, they could see that we were growing. And so obviously the label is going to make you a priority if that's how things are going. Yeah, that's great. And the band just continued to grow. I mean, you saw an even bigger jump with constellations yes yeah i mean after Constell yeah constellations we saw a really big jump charted well in the billboards and we were on tour at the time when that record came out and you know we were selling out like house of blues size venues and you know things were things were going really really well for us then that's got to blow your mind right yeah it was definitely you know not what we expected you know we were a metalcore band at that point that had absolutely no singing which was definitely against the trends you know, most of your metal bands at that point were going like the Azalea Dying route where they, you know, had choruses and things like that. Like that's what was really popular. And so for us, we were just like a linear metalcore band that didn't have any choruses or any singing and super heavy and abrasive and things were going well. You know, it, it definitely wasn't what we expected. Yeah, that's what's surprising about it is because most metalcore bands go that route where it's you have like screaming verses a singing chorus and you know i guess the songs get a little more polished but you guys don't necessarily do that you have longer songs it's still very metal yeah yeah i, mean, I don't know it's just the kind of music that we wanted to play we we didn't really love the whole sing scream formula that everyone was doing and also just to be blunt no one in our band could sing so <laughs> we were just like all right, this is the route we're going because none of us can sing. So it doesn't really matter even if we try. Did anyone ever try and it was just like, oh, that's not working? No, no, we didn't because we all just <laughs> kind of knew. We're like, I must have singing voices, so we're not going to do this. <laughs> so who influences you? I mean, because there's a lot of stuff going on that could have potentially influenced you. Thursday, plenty of singing there, Poison the Well. They had some singing, screaming stuff. Like, how do you guys land on just staying heavy and metallic um i mean we really liked between the barrier to me at that point but even they had you know had a lot of singing we just i don't know it just 
we were just kind of making the music that we wanted to make at that point and and still are it's it's what we'd want to hear if we listened to a metalcore band um a lot of us really liked architects at that point and they were just really abrasive as well but yeah and and converge and things like that so that's just kind of where we developed our sound what do you think it is that has helped you guys survive this long because we've seen tons of bands in this genre come and go and you guys have been going at it for 20 years now and you've continued to grow throughout that 20 years as well is there decisions that you made or is there a foresight that you had what do you think it is um i just think it was when we were coming up we just kind of played with everyone we didn't shy away from playing with certain bands we just kind of went and we played and our priority was always putting on the best live show we could and that's just how we picked up fans and i think we just hit we became popular at a time when our sound was a little bit different enough that we stood out. And so people latched onto us and like, we've been lucky enough that those same people have just kind of stayed with us along the way. And we just keep picking up, you know, new people as well and bringing them in. And then, you know, we've always just made sure that our fans are our priority. Um, we have a good pulse of what they want and what they like. Um, and then we also just kind of make music that we like, and, and we're just kind of real confident that our fans will continue to like what we're creating just because they've been here for so long now. That makes sense. So you guys eventually leave Solid State, correct? Yep. I read somewhere that, uh, you know, maybe they wanted you to do things a certain way and you guys didn't want to, and that was part of the reason that you left. Is that true? Um, well, we left because, um, you know, a lot of the people who we had worked with weren't there anymore. Um but then a label, we went to Fearless, and they just had a lot of people that we had worked with in the past, and uh, people we liked. And so that's kind of why we stuck with them, and they just had a big, big team that had a lot of great ideas for the band. And, you know, change can always can, can be good, you know, and we just wanted fresh ideas and new ideas, and that's what we thought we needed to keep the band moving forward. What changes did the band make once you moved to Fearless? How did that help you out? Uh, we didn't make anything. We didn't make any changes uh, as far as the band went, you know. Um, but we just had like, like Fearless had just a really big marketing team, and they were able to put us in in front of people who uh, Solid State wasn't at that point. They also had a really big international department, and at that point, Solid State wasn't doing anything internationally, and that was one of the big reasons that we picked Fearless. Um, we knew that they could raise our, uh, you know. Raise, raise the bar for us outside of America. And that's what we needed. And that was our big priority. And so we just went, we went with them. And that was, uh, you know, a good move for us because they definitely helped us there. Yeah. Internet, for a metal band, you really want international distribution. I mean, metal is huge in Europe, probably even bigger than here. Right. And we had always struggled. And Europe still can be a tough market for us. But once we went to Fearless and made that choice, it definitely grew um, to a bigger level. Do you have a better foothold in Europe now? Yeah, we do. We do. Like I said, it's not as anywhere near the States, but it's it's definitely better. And in leaving Solid State and moving into Fearless, did you have any trouble with... Uh, I know sometimes Solid State tooth and nail bands can have trouble in terms of like the faith-based stuff. Like maybe the audience expects something, maybe the label expects something from you and it, you know, there's just a conflict. Did you ever have any issues with that kind of stuff? I mean, no, not really. I mean... We have people in the band who are extremely faith-based. We have people who aren't. And, you know, I think a lot of Solid State bands are like that. We wanted to be on Solid State because at that point, they had the biggest bands in our genre. You know, they were they were the ones paving the way. You know, we weren't really out there to make 
a big religious statement or anything like that. Um, and especially once, you know, we had toured more and more and more, the secular world just treated us so much better. So that, you know, as far as the face based thing, that just didn't become, that wasn't a priority anymore. Um, you know, we had, like I said, we had, we got treated just much better in the secular world. And that was just kind of where we leaned at that point. So how is it changed? Was it more faith-based before? Like, was that ever central to the core of the band, maybe in the earlier days? Uh, in the earlier days, I think we, a lot of the guys were much more religious. Um, but yeah. I think that's just like human beings in general. Like I, at that time period, like go, growing up and going to church was way more popular than it is now. You know, I, I spent my Sundays at church. So like, I, you know, that was just what I did. And so it, it, you know, it wasn't a priority, but it was definitely there, you know, that I felt some kind of need because I did grow up in a religious family. And then, you know, as you grow up and grow older and experience the world, you kind of grow apart from that a little bit. Yeah. What denomination were you growing up? I was Lutheran. Okay. So when you go, you had to go to church every Sunday, is it just a normal mass or are you there like all day? What's the story? No, it's just like an hour, hour long thing. And you do communion at the end. And that was that. Okay. Yeah. Cause I grew up Catholic. I went to 12 right. years of Catholic school. So my idea of religion is being forced to go to church on Sunday. And I really don't want to go. That's like, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. like my association. I mean, it was all right. I had a lot of friends in church. Um, and so it was always okay, but you know, uh, we we rarely sat there through the service. <laughs> we just would do other <laughs> stuff. So, but it, it was all right. It provided me with a lot of friends that I still have now, and you know that's important. That's good. It sounds like maybe your church was more of a community thing. You know, like maybe you meant friends there. Like Catholic church, you go. We didn't even really know anybody there, and then we went home. Yeah, it, it was more of a like we did like Sunday school and stuff. And, like I made friends there. And it wasn't a big church by any means, so it was a lot more close-knit. So that's that's how I ended up, you know, being able to make friends and that are still around, you know, to this day. When you were younger, did you embrace the faith at all? Like, did you, did you believe in all of that? Like, Catholicism was kind of, I don't know, it was like a fear thing, like, don't do anything bad or you're going to go to hell. So, and I didn't really understand it, and I guess I never fully embraced it. Yeah. And then as I got older, I don't know, I just realized that, it's not for me. And I just kind of did my own thing. What, how was it for you? I mean, I always, yeah, I mean, I definitely believe it. And I still have like a level of beliefs in me for sure. But I never really liked the church. Um, and as far as like, especially like down the road, like and how, like I said, we just got treated much better in the secular market and things just, you know, things within churches just seemed to get like worse and worse and more judgmental and all that stuff like that. And that just wasn't, that just wasn't me. And that's not what I thought the church was. You know, the church just kind of seemed to turn into a political party versus a religion about loving your neighbor. And so that's kind of where I lost interest in the actual church. Where do you stand with it today? Uh, like I said, I just, I have my beliefs still, but I, if you were like, Hey, do you want to go to church? I'd be like, nah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For many years, I, I like a lot of friends I looked up to were super anti-religion and all that stuff. And I was too, I guess. Yeah. The, I mean, the all right, let me keep it on the Catholic church. The Catholic church has done a lot of bad things over the years that we know about. And I think organized religion in general is not a good thing, but I think spirituality is important. And I, I kind of came to that because, you know, I was like addicted to drugs for many years 
And in 12-step fellowships, they teach you that like a higher power is important and that spirituality is important. And I agree with that because when your back is up against the wall and you've got nothing else to do, like what what are you going to do? I don't know. Like you, you can't rely on yourself necessarily. You need community. You need something else. So I'm I'm kind of coming at it from that angle. But yeah, if someone's like, hey, do you want to go to church? Or I don't know, do you want to get the body of Christ? I'd be like, no, I'm good. I, I kind of just practice my own thing. That That's that's okay. Yeah, right. I mean, that, and I think that's what a lot of people do. I think a lot of people get turned off by it. And that's definitely where I kind of land as well. But, you know, I think that it is important to believe in something. I think it makes it, you know, I don't know, just kind of my whole reason with sticking with religion was, has always just kind of been like, whoa, if there's absolutely nothing, how do you become you? Like, you know, like, you know, how, why am I me? You know, like, how does that, how does that work? You know, and that's just kind of why I've always stuck with it a little bit. I think. Yeah. Like my, my philosophy is, I don't know, I, but I guess there's something and that's enough. And I, I was just super self-conscious. Like I always ask myself, like what, and not just in terms of like spirituality or any of that stuff. I always ask myself, what do I think? Because for so many years, like I would say something to appease a certain group of people, or yeah, I'd be like, sure. oh, I don't want to be perceived as this. But now I just say, stop. What do you think? And don't worry about anybody else because it doesn't matter. They're not going to be there for you when when you need them. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you build the people around you that you want to be around you. You know that not. You don't do it because they believe in the same thing as you. you. You do it because they're your support system. So things continue growing for August Burns Red. Where are you guys? Do you guys tour in a bus now? Yeah, we've been in a bus for a while now. How long? Since 2010. Ah, now when you graduated from van to bus, that must have been amazing, right? Yeah, it felt great. And we were always like, we've always been pretty DIY and like, conservative with our spending and things like that so we were in a van for probably longer than we needed to be to be honest but you know guys in the van had gold we all wanted to be able to own homes before we moved to a bus so that was kind of a big thing for us and then 2010 we were just really kind of like we need to step up our production game and in order to do that we need to bring a bus so we can bring more crew members so that was just kind of where where we landed so stepping up the production what do you do? Do you have like additional lights? How do you guys decide on that stuff? Yeah. I mean, at this point we have just like a really, really big production. You know, at this point we have a bus, we have a like a truck as well. And that carries the light show and then the trailers, but with like merch and audio gear. So like that's where at this point, I mean, when we started out, we just needed, you know, we needed a guitar tech. We wanted, we needed a drum tech. We needed, you know, people to help, help put on the show that we wanted to be able to put on. and. And then, you know, we just gradually built into the light show we have now, which has become pretty ridiculous at this point. <laughs> That's what you want, though, because you, you got to invest money to grow the thing, right? Right. And, you know, we've gone out and we've purchased a lot of our own lights. So, like, there's certain lights that you you would rent them every single time for your show. And so we've picked, you know, we, we just decided to buy them because it was way more cost effective. And... So we've just kind of built and built our own lighting stuff at this point. And we, there's still stuff that we need to rent. Like we have like a full like laser, like actual like laser show. And those are ones we rent. Those are just far too expensive um, for us to buy and maintain and take care of. So, um, but everything else, like we started to just kind of accumulate on our own. How do you decide 
it's time to start investing in the production? Like, do you sit down and look at the numbers and say like, all right, guys, enough of this van stuff. We can afford a bus. We can afford some crew. Like we got to take it to the next level. Right. I mean, that's exactly what you do. You look at your budget and you say, okay, we can afford to do this. Is everyone going to take a little bit of a hit as we start doing this? Yeah, sure. But, you know, as your production gets better and your show gets better, you're, you know, the hope is that your merch and merchandise sales improve because you're putting on a better show. And, you know, word of mouth spreads about the show. And now it's social media, there's videos of it all over the place and people want to go see it. So it becomes an investment at that point. And, you know, we could see as our shows got bigger and bigger and better and better, our, you know, ticket sales got better and our merch sales got better. So it definitely panned out for us. Yeah, that's amazing. Because imagine you invest all that money and uh, less people come to the shows. That's exactly what you don't want. (laughs) I mean, that happens, you know, that happens to people. Like I said, there's a lot of luck in this industry and how things go for you. A lot of knowing the right people and just making the best decisions you can. Um, And, you know, we've just always been a band that like, I just kind of believe that if you treat people well, that well that they'll want to work with you more and more and this is kind of how we've always gone and you know we build relationships and we get support from people um who want to be with us for the long haul that's the way to do it yeah august burns red has been twice nominated for grammys correct yep now when you get nominated for a grammy how do you find out uh we found our first one we found out via text message from our manager at the time um both of the times we actually found out that way because, and then we found out from our label the second time because we were on tour and asleep when the not when the nominations came out, so we didn't know. But yeah, we just we just kind of found out that way, and it was just the first one was just such a huge surprise. Like we didn't even know that anyone had even submitted our names for it. Like we had no clue. Um, like we just couldn't believe it. Who submits your names for that? Does the the label do it or the manager? Who does that? The label does it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's got to be a big shock like because I don't know I'm still surprised when I hear bands in our scene nominated for Grammys even if they should be like okay Turnstile's nominated for a Grammy. I expect that but I'm still surprised. Right, it's always sounds strange and I think it was really surprising like we were like one of the first less like metalcore bands like in our world like nominated for a Grammy. I think it threw a lot of people for a loop. Like it didn't you know, I, I, I think maybe Azalea Dying was before us, uh, and that was pretty much it. Maybe Lamb of God, I don't know. But even them, like, they've been on the radio, like, they have had very big commercial success, whereas, like, we were just some metalcore band that literally has never been on the radio, doesn't get, not in magazines, not things like that, just a word-of-mouth kind of band, and we got nominated for a Grammy. It was kind of wild. Do you get invited to the ceremony? Did you go to that? Yeah, we went to both, yep. What do you wear to that? Do you wear a suit? Yeah. Yeah, we all wear suits. And how was it? I mean, like, like, what's the vibe there? It's a neat experience. It's nerve-wracking. It's, it's, it's fun, though. You get to, like, see people that you never thought you'd be able to see and, you know, hang out and bump elbows with, like, interesting industry people. And it's a good time. It's, it's definitely, like, if you get nominated, you just you, you want to go. It, it's fun. Um, and... And yeah, it was just a big honor. I mean, just to be there was was really cool. Yeah, do you get to rub elbows with like other nominees and big stars, or are they all like cornered off in some secret room? Uh, not like during the ceremony, but like after parties is where you'd see them. Like okay. the the second time we got nominated, our record label at that point was bought by Concord, 
And so Concord had their own after party at this big thing. And that's where you saw like people like that. Um, like Cindy Lauper was there and like, oh yeah, it was just stuff like that. It was fun. Did you meet anybody interesting like that? You just say hi and hello. And that's pretty much it. Um, and yeah, but, and we talked to, you know, more people in our world that we hadn't met before, like the guys from Mastodon and all kinds of stuff. So it was fun. Oh, that's cool. How long is the whole award ceremony? Like, are you sitting there for, I don't know, what is it? Four or five hours? Yeah, so our award gets drawn in like that first ceremony thing, the, the one that's not televised, and yeah. then you go to the other one. So it's a long day for sure, but it's fun. We pretty much just only watch. We show up, and then they call your award, and then you can leave if you want, and that's kind of where we what we did. Is uh, the Grammys like the Oscars where they kind of want you to campaign if you're going to end up winning the award? Yeah, like they they – well, wait, wait, what do you mean? Because we had to like, we have to like set up stuff before, like you want like people to vote for you. So that's what the label does. They try and get people to vote for you and they're campaigning for that. Yeah. Like with the Oscars, like if you get nominated, right? if you get nominated and do nothing, you're probably not going to win. You have to like go out there and do interviews and campaign. And right. that's, that factors into you winning. Right. I mean, yeah, we, the label would just push as much as we, as much as they could. Um, you know, the first time we nominated, we were up against like such huge competition and the second time too. So like, you know, it was our independent label at that point fighting against these massive labels, you know? And then I think the second time we were one of two or three bands who were on Concord because that's such a huge umbrella label. And so, you know, they have their priorities as well and who they're going to campaign for because it's probably the person who's going to sell them the most records. So, so two-time Grammy-nominated, that's pretty wild, right? Yeah, it's cool. It's definitely a great accolade to have. Do you ever introduce yourself to people as two-time <laughs> Grammy-nominated musician Brent Rambler? No, I have not. <laughs> I don't know that I could ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be a bad look, but it would be really funny, too. Like, I, right. I'd want to be sliding that info out there somehow. You know? Right, right. I think... I think my family would be more inclined to do that than I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you let them do it. That's right. good. Right. Um, so you've got a new album coming out in March, Death Below, yes? Yep. We must be very excited about this, correct? Yeah, I am excited about it. It's been done for forever, but because of how slow vinyl production is, it takes forever for an album to come out now. But Like a we'll, year. Yeah, hopefully we'll get caught up soon. But yeah, we've been done... We've been done with mixes since like beginning of May. <laughs> so. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you get sidelined by the pandemic at all or was this after? Um, I, it's, I guess it's all part of the pandemic. Well, I don't know. It's hard to say. What really backed vinyl production up was um, Adele's record that came out. Like vinyl became really popular over the pandemic. Like collecting things in general just became popular over the pandemic. Um, and so when Adele's record came out, she was selling like, she had like a million plus vinyl that needed to be pressed. So literally like every vinyl plant, like on the planet was lined up to press that vinyl. And so it put back everything a lot, you know, and now you have these huge artists who weren't normally pressing anything on vinyl. Cause that was literally like, usually like the indie bands doing it all pressing their records on vinyl. So you have like what like Harry Styles, I think, just sold like two hundred thousand vinyl or something like that. 
And so like you have bands like that who are now in the mix. So vinyl production has slowed down a lot because there's not a lot of pressing plants out there that press vinyl. It costs a fortune to buy a vinyl pressing machine. So it's just gotten a lot slower, you know, and I think that it might catch up, but it's going to take a long time. Yeah, you know, I actually remember reading about that Adele thing now that you yeah. mentioned it. Everyone was a mad, mad at Adele for uh, uh, vinyl delays. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I wouldn't think that Adele fans would buy vinyl, but I've been told that I'm not correct about that. Right. I mean, I think that there's just like, she appeals to such a broad generation of people. And I think, yeah. like, like I said, like over the pandemic, people just got really into collecting things. And... Like I collect comic books and I didn't buy a single comic over the pandemic because the price of them became unreal because of the demand. Like people just like it, it, anything like that, anything that you can collect, people wanted just tangible things and vinyl was one of them. And so, yeah, it kind of exploded and, you know, unfortunately it didn't trickle down to record stores because it's become a straight up direct consumer thing. Like it's really hard to go to a record store now and find like new vinyl because a lot of it is going straight from the artist to the fans via web store. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You, they do a pre-order, it sells out and that's it. Yep. I mean, we own our own web store now and pretty much we're selling all our own vinyl, all our vinyl in our web store. Like we've allowed some to go out to retailers, but we know it's just going to rot because no one is going to go to a record store anymore and buy a record. Like they they're just going to, I'm going to buy it from the band. Like, that's what they want, you know? Yeah, that's how it happens. The merch drop comes out, and then that's it. Yeah. When did writing begin for the latest record? Um, pretty much as soon as the other one came out, because we put out Guardians, and then immediately the pandemic happened. Like, we put out Guardians, we were on tour with Position Gage for three days, and then we got sent home um, in March. And then Guardians pretty much dropped during the two weeks to slow the spread thing. So like it really railroaded the record and we were given the option to delay guardians um, until people were allowed to go shopping again. But we just kind of said like, we don't want to be another disappointment in a long line of disappointments. So we're just going to, re- we're just going to release it. You know, people have been looking forward to it. We were looking forward to it coming out. And so we put it, we just said, we're going to do it. So yeah. And pretty much immediately after that, we had, you know, nothing on our plates. So writing started immediately. Man, Kill Switch Engage tour canceled. That must have been a bummer. It was a bummer. You know, it was a tour. Everything was lined up like amazingly well for the release of that record. All the singles had gone well. We had this big tour lined up and then boom, it was just gone. Ugh. Yeah. It, it was such a weird time when I think about it now for so many reasons. But, and I talked about this recently with another guest, like just, you didn't know what was going to happen. Live music was gone. It just wasn't happening anymore. And you never knew if, when or if it was going to come back. Right. And, you know, a lot of people were like, well, you're going to get a new job. And I was just like, like, like some of my family was even like, what are you going to do? And, you know, I sat there and I had gotten my real estate license in 2013. Um, I never, I never ended up using it. Like, and it eventually lapsed because it only lasts for five years. But I, had, I was home for a tour when my son was born. Um, I took off for a tour. Um, and I was just like, eh, you know, I'll just get my real estate license while I kind of wait for this baby to come. And so I did that. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe I'll do that again. And I started doing the classes for it again online. 
And I sat there and I said to myself, I've spent the last 18 years building this band and JB and I, the guitar player, we manage the band. I'm like, nah, I'm not just going to like do something else. And so that's when we really just started to like put things to work. I decided I was going to open our own web store. So I learned how to use Shopify. I learned how to build us a web store. I said to myself, I buy and sell comics all over eBay. So if I can do that, I can figure this out. And, you know, ended up shipping the first thousand orders out of my basement. Um, like while my daughter was being born pretty much <laughs> in, wow. July, in July of 2020. And like, and then like at the same time, uh, Dustin and JB were working on what was going to be an EP at first. And so they were writing the music for it. And they talked to me about writing the lyrics for it and just being like an EP that just flows from one song to the other. And, you know, we, that's what the plan was. And then we ended up just writing and writing and writing. And we eventually had to, so much material that we're like, all right, we just need to make this a full length. So, you know, we recorded the first portion of death below in like april and may of 2020 yeah and i think uh i think some of these moves that you're making are what helps keep the band around for as long as it's been around i mean learning shopify and making a web store like you're you're making moves uh, the business aspect of it is is just as important as the music right it for sure is and you know we built a lot of relationships that way and like the web store is probably like the best thing that for the band that came out of the pandemic. Like it's, it's kind of incredible. We just learned a lot about, you know, direct to consumer and how like, you know, we don't need other people selling our merchandise. We can do it ourselves. And eventually got too big for me to deal with, you know, shipping everything myself. So the company that prints our merchandise also runs a fulfillment center. So they fulfill all the orders, but JB and I run the store. We run the customer service. We, run the actual platform and everything like that. So, you know, it, it, and we just, you know, we were able to do our live streams through our own web store. So that was huge. You know, we had 15,000 people buy tickets to our live streams and they all had, and they all had to do it via our web store. So, you know, and there was no middleman there to take anything. So, you know, we just, we just kind of figured out a lot. We had a lot of help along the way. I, you know, reached out to a lot of different people to help us and uh, a lot of phone calls, a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we figured it out and made it work. I love that. Yeah, that's what you have to do. DIY or die. That's the way it goes. Right. I mean, there's and like there are other bands who had really successful things happen during the pandemic. And that's awesome. But we've just kind of, you know, you have everyone for a lot of bands, there's just so many people trying to get into that pot. And we've just always kind of been like, we'll figure this out ourselves. A long time ago, we had a great manager who JB and I were really good friends with. And he, in 2016, was just kind of like, you guys can do this yourselves. You don't need me. He's like, you're just paying an extra person. He was just like, you know, you aren't going to change your sound. So you're not going to be on the radio. So what do you need me for kind of thing? And we're like, yeah, like pretty much. And so that this kind of went from there because JB and I had always kind of micromanaged the business, even when we had a manager. So we just kind of slid really naturally into that role. And, you know, 
no one cares about your band more than the members. So, uh, is it difficult that you're managing the band ever? Like, uh, I mean, is there ever a disagreement with a member? And and as manager, you can be like, nope, I'm the manager. That's it. We really try not to do that. <laughs> you definitely have don't you ever had to? No, not really. Uh, we we've always just kind of been like, this is a very democratic process. Yeah, and like we vote on stuff, and if you get voted out, it's kind of like too bad, so sad situation. Um, yeah. and everyone's kind of learned to live with that. And so that's kind of how, we, how we've always rolled. And it's, it, it's worked out well for us. You know, sometimes people get upset, but everyone's an adult. You know, if your idea is not the idea that gets picked, you know, like I said, everyone's an adult and you can deal with it. So how did Guardians end up doing? Did you, I mean, did, uh, did people still pick it up? Did you get to play those songs after the pandemic again live? Yeah, I mean, it was actually like our best charting record ever um wow. yeah it did really 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 well um and it shocked us i think it was the number one rock album i think it was you know i forget where we landed like i think it was like the number i forget exactly all the numbers maybe number four like bought album that week it came out it, it did really well it was like the number one vinyl number one bunch of stuff so it definitely exceeded our expectations considering that absolutely no one could go out and buy it. <laughs> so um, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We were really happy. And, you know, eventually, yeah, we did get to go play the songs. We did a live stream of, of our annual Christmas show that we did that. We played some songs from other people as well. And then, you know, we went out and this past summer we toured it and like gave it its due. But we have the new album death below coming out. We've got some singles out Reckoning, which features Spencer Chamberlain from Under Oath. And we've got Ancestry, which features Jesse Leach from Kill Switch Engage. How do you work it with uh, the guest spots? Do you give the guest vocalist lyrics? Um, or do they do their own thing? Like, how, how does the collaborations work? Um, this time around, they did their own thing. Um, you know, the guys are obviously extremely capable vocalists. And so we were just like, you know, guys, here's kind of the gist of these songs. Here's the words as we have them. If you want to write your own parts, you can write your own parts. If you want us to help you, let us know. And so Jesse didn't live that far away uh, from us. He lives in upstate New York a little bit. So he just drove down to our studio for the day and just kind of, he spitballed some ideas he had and we loved him. And so he just kind of rolled and he banged it out in a day. And then Spencer worked in a studio close to his house down South and, he uh, wrote pretty much his whole part. Um, and he sent a couple of revisions and things like that. And, but yeah, it, it just, we got lucky. We just kind of asked the guys and they said, yes, in the past we've gotten, it's hard to get guests. It can be hard. Um, and this record, like the fact that we were able to line up like four great guest appearances, we were really stoked on. Who are the other guest appearances? Uh, we have Jason Richardson, the guitar player. Um, he rips a ridiculous solo on a song called Tightrope. And then uh, JT Cavi from Era does vocals on a song called uh, Abyss. So you write uh, you write lyrics for the band, correct? Yeah. How much? Uh, the, the vast majority, um, probably like 80 to 90% of them. How does that happen? Is it just because you have so much tenure? Like, how does that all shake out? Um, it just kind of started uh, with Messengers. Um, I've started writing more and more as we go. Um, we didn't know who our vocalist was going to be after Thrill Seeker came out. And 
you know, we were like, we got to record demos and things like that. So I just kind of started writing and Jake had come in and he was like thrown into the fray right away. And so I was just kind of showing him stuff I had wrote and he really liked it. And so it just kind of all started from there. And, you know, it used to be a little bit more even where like Matt would write some, Jake would write some, I would write some. And it just became like this thing that I was just like, I really liked doing. And Jake was liking, liking what I was producing. And so was the rest of the band. And so like, I mean, oh, the guys write stuff other than me. Like I said, it's from like an 80, 90% kind of thing. Like Matt wrote a song on this past record. Jake has, I think two or three songs on this on death below. And so like I, and I always try to work with them and I work with Jake with the lyrics I write. Um, and he makes revisions. We obviously change them a ton in the studio. So it, it, it's a process, but you know, it just kind of got there naturally, I guess. Talk about some of the creative process now and, uh, how death below came together. Sure. I mean, um, JB and Dustin handle the lion's share of writing the music. Um, Dustin is a multi-instrumentalist. He can play drums, bass, guitar, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so they handle the lion's share of the music. And then all along, we're writing lyrics. Like if Matt's writing lyrics, Jake's writing lyrics, I'm writing lyrics. And then um, we just kind of look at all the songs and we look at all the lyrics we have. And we just kind of go like, all right, this fits with this, this fits with this. And then we mold things how we want them to be as far as lyrics with the songs. Um, sometimes it flows like really, really well. And it's just like, feels like fits like a glove. And then sometimes we're just like, I really like this topic for this song, but you know, it's not fitting as well as we want it. So, you know, it, it, and then we really have to massage it, but you know, it, it, it's kind of like, it's a good process, but every once in a while you hit a snag like that. How do you know? how to match things do you go by feeling like the way i write i don't start writing lyrics until i know what the song is going to be about and i'll I'll just kind of yell nonsense and i don't know words come together and i somehow i just land on what the song is going to be about and then i start writing the lyrics like how do you piece it together uh for me it's a, it's usually about like experience or something comes into my head i'm like ooh, that's a good line and then i immediately need to like sit down and write it all down yeah like i don't I just need to like go at that point. Um, I'll find like an instrumental song or something like that. And if we don't have one, I find someone else who, who does. And I just kind of use that as like a help to write. Um, but I really just like to just kind of write down as much as I can at that point. And then I'll like revisit it and actually make it into like a lyric or like a set of words that gets turned into a lyric, I guess. So we have the new record coming out. You're on tour right now. Uh, are you playing any of the new singles on tour? Yeah, we're doing Backfire and Ancestry on this tour. How's it going so far? Good reception? Yeah, good reception. Both the songs are extremely difficult to play. So <laughs> they're the probably the least movement in the set from the band members, but uh, I think they're going over pretty well. What makes it difficult to play? They're both just really fast, um, really difficult triplet songs. And it's, you know, they're they're just really moving. I play bass on Backfire and, you know, usually like the last minute of that song is pretty much just a breakdown, which sounds easy, but it is so difficult because of how fast it is on a bass. Like I could chug it all day long on, on a guitar, but when you're trying to 
cut through those big heavy bass strings in a really fast rhythm it's rough yeah i uh it's really hard to chug on bass i've been working on a lot of bass guitar stuff all weekend and there is a chug part in one of them and i was like oh it's really hard to do this perfectly right yeah it gets really difficult and then it's like yeah it's triplet and it's like yeah and then our bass player dustin who plays guitar on backfire he's like says that ancestry is just like one of his hardest songs on bass for the same exact reason he's like it's insanely fast just like triplet chugs that are just so difficult that's funny that after all this time like it can still be difficult for you Um, guys but i think that's a good thing because it means you're pushing yourselves the songs are harder than ever it's funny when i hear people (laughs) when i hear people say you guys got less technical and it's like no we didn't you just think you just think that because this song has a melody that it's less technical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like uh, one thing I've learned uh, being involved with more music playing and writing lately is even if it doesn't sound technical, that doesn't mean anything. Like something that sounds easy can be really hard to play just because of the rhythm or I don't, it could be any number of things. I mean, it could just be an awkward finger placement and that's all yep. it, and it just throws it off completely. And when you said uh, people are playing switching guitar and bass, do you guys switch instruments live or is this on the recording? No, we switch live. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's got to be intense, right? It's fun. Um, It's fun for us. It's fun for the crowd, I think. Um, We have, over this this past summer, we had like, I think, probably like nine different instrument changes because I would play bass for some, our bass player would play bass for some, our drummer, I mean, our singer would play bass for a song and JB, the guitar player, would play bass for a song or two. And then we're all just kind of flopping around. And yeah, I think we had like nine different instrument changes in that set. This one, we have four. Does it ever, do you ever get confused and think you're playing bass when you're playing guitar or something? Uh, not really, because my guitar tech usually is walking towards me to let me know. Because he'll, <laughs> he'll have my bass in his hand. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about what we've got coming up now. Death Below is coming out March 24th, correct? Yep. So we have to pick that up, right? Yep, yep. It's a great record. You know, it the record is designed to be listened to from start to finish, which is, you know, it's funny in the days of streaming to write a record like that, but that's just what we wanted to do. You know, it's songs that are long, which is also is not beloved in the days of streaming where you get paid per play, not for how long your songs are. So, uh, but it's 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 a great record. It's dense as can be. It's pretty dark. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think people will like it, but it's definitely not a first listen record. That's for sure. I like that, uh, you're going with that approach because, you know, cohesive albums, longer songs, longer albums are all things of the past because everybody's attention span is so, so short these days, mine included that, uh, I think it's good to challenge ourselves, uh, whenever we can. Right. And it's just, you know, it, everyone now, like, is just encouraged to put out like a song every couple months you know, not an album because if you put out a song every couple of months, you're going to get better playlisting. You're going to get things like that. And it's just like, it's all just now geared towards short attention span and not, you know, actually latching on to a band. You're latching on to like a song and, you know, for us and our fans, it's always been that they've latched onto the band. And so we want to continue that trend. So we've got the album coming. What tours? Do you have any additional tours coming up that we can announce yet? Um, we just have this 20-year tour. Um, we're on the first leg now, and the second leg runs mid-April to mid-May. 
Um, that's the only announced touring we have right now. Were you ever tempted in all of these 20 years to maybe start a solo project or join some other band? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've not been. I like to be blunt, like I'm not a great guitar player. I am a passable guitar player and our songs are extremely difficult. So it takes me weeks to learn one of our songs. I don't have time. I don't have anywhere near time to sing about anything else. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that because I'm the same way. I it could take me minimum one week, usually I don't know, two to three weeks to learn a song depending on how complicated it is. And uh if it were your band, Brent, I don't think I could learn it at all, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. They're very difficult. Have you ever been offered another gig in another band and turned it down? No. I like that. I have twenty years, one band, you just stick with it, you know? It's it's not a common story. People usually have all different kinds of things going on and all that. I think it's the same with everyone. Like our songs are challenging and like I couldn't imagine our drummer Matt being able to go play for another band. And uh, you know, it's just and people we've all just kind of said like this band is enough for us and there's other endeavors happening outside of the band. Like our singer has a gym, Matt owns a farm, Dustin like likes to do work at his brother's brewery when he's home for fun. Like JB and I have families. So it's just, you know, we have enough. What's your family structure? What do you have? Uh, married with two kids. I have two humongous dogs. And yeah. Where do you live? Uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, in Lancaster. Okay, nice. Yeah. So what do you do when you're not touring? You said you're into comic books. That's cool. What else? I mean, mostly when we're not on tour, JB and I are still running the business of the band. It's a daily endeavor um there's things that we have to do all the time you know we have multiple employees we have multiple companies that we work with and it's it's a like i said it's a daily business that we need to run so you're never off it sounds like not really no <laughs> you said you i you know what you just reminded me you said you do customer service for the web store earlier yeah now what does that entail i mean it's daily stuff um we've had almost 60,000 orders to our web store now yeah. Um, and so it's dealing with all of that customers who didn't get what they wanted customers who ordered the wrong thing. They have put in my wrong address. I, all kinds of stuff. You know, I forgot to change the size on the shirt and now I ordered a small, I need help getting it switched back. Just things like that. Wow. So like you, Brent of the band are directly working with customers in, uh, their customer service issues. I love that. Yep. Do they ever know that it's you they're talking to? Yeah, most of the time. I mean, is there ever any funny interactions out of that? That's got to be interesting. Uh, it, it can be. A lot of times if people come in like hot, like, you know, people can get upset over mistakes that happen with shipping and things like that. And as soon as I say like, if I'll be like, hey, blah, 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 blah. Thanks, Brent. And people, as soon as they see that, they're just immediately calmed down. <laughs> it's funny. It's a great... It's a great neutralizer. That's what... Yes. See, I would open up with, hi, this is Brent from the band. Uh, I'm doing my best to take care of this. And then it would probably instantly deflate it 99% of the time. Yeah, it's a it's a good neutralizer for sure. Well, uh, Brent, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. You know, I'm looking forward to the new record, as many of us are. I wish you and the rest of the guys continued success. Stay safe out there on tour. And thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And there you have it, Brent Rambler. It was really great to hear the band's story because, you know, that's not a typical story for any band, for most bands. 
to start out, to start out strong, and to just keep growing the way August Burns Red have for decades now? Not a typical story. So I'm very happy that they've continued to progress. They've continued to grow. They've continued to build upon everything they've done over the years. And look at what they've done. Brent was going to go back to selling real estate during the pandemic. Can you believe that? But instead, he built a web store for the band. They're taking out the middleman. They're doing what they have to do to survive and provide for themselves with their art. I mean, the band has grown a lot over the years, both in sound and live. Brent was right about their current light show. I don't know if you've seen them lately or, or have seen any of the footage online, but it's incredible. They're doing everything correctly. And I really like everything I've heard from Death Below, their new record. It comes out this Friday. Make sure you check it out. The singles are great. There's a lot of excellent guest artists on the record. You heard Brent talk about it. It's going to be good. Their Christmas album is good too. You know, I have this memory. I was new to New York City. It was around Christmas time. I was on a date with this girl. I was in a bar in Greenpoint. And this guy put some metal Christmas album on the jukebox. And I was like, what is this? And he said, August Burns Red. I didn't remember though. So years and years and years go by. I forget. I always remembered that for some reason, but I never remembered who the band was until I talked to Brent and he mentioned that they had a Christmas album. And I was like, that's the band, August Burns Red. So they have good holiday albums even. So that'll be some nice music to revisit around the holidays. Excellent interview. Thank you so much, Brent. All right. So let's talk about ourselves. How are we doing? How are you all doing out there? Are we surviving? Are we making it through winter? Spring is on the horizon. I'm happy about that. Daylight savings kicked my butt a little bit this week. Last year, I didn't feel it. This year, I did. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. My day job is really busy. I'm having to do some difficult things, but it's going to be good because, uh, hey, there's going to be a big payoff if I make it through what I'm working on now in one piece. And we love that. In addition to that, everything is just really busy. You know, all day I work, right? All day I work the day job, sometimes into the night. All night I work on the podcast. And then all weekend I work on music. I have my own band practice. I have another band thing I'm working on right now that I can't announce yet. But if all goes according to plan, I will have an announcement for that soon. So that's exciting. Keep your eyes peeled. But yeah, work all during the week, podcast at night, work on music all weekend, and work on the podcast as well. So every single minute of every single week is just filled lately. And I'm not complaining. I'm saying this because I'm happy. This was the dream. This was the dream when I was strung out, sitting by myself for months at a time, watching nonsense, doing nothing regretting my entire life, in this short amount of time, I've managed to piece together the life I've always wanted. And I'm really happy about it. So if I ever get overwhelmed, or if I get too busy, or if I'm like, oh, I don't want to do it, I'm just like, remember where you were before. You've got everything you want now. So be grateful. And I am. I am. There's so much awesome stuff going on. And I can't wait to share all of it with you. I am looking forward to a day of doing nothing, though. I really want... the. I'm almost over the hump on all of this stuff. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to have a little more free time in April, and I'm really looking forward to it. 
I want a day to just sit around and do nothing, play video games, stream on Twitch, something like that. I need that. But speaking of video games, I started Elden Ring on PlayStation 5 this past Sunday, and I have no clue what I'm doing. I've never played a FromSoft game. You know, I got past the little opening training segment in the game and out into the open world, which looks magnificent. And that's as far as I got. I can't wait to play more. I don't know if I'm going to be able to this weekend, but I can't wait. It it looks awesome. I'm I'm going to try to play with no guide, which I know is crazy, but I just want to wander around, get my butt kicked, see what's up, see what I can figure out by myself for a while before I dig into online to tutorials and all of that stuff. So we're going to see how it goes. And I need to talk about Warzone 2. Now, I was very excited about Warzone 2, as many of us were. I've had, another, I've had a lot of time to play it. I've had a lot of time to think about it. And I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't feel compelled to play Modern Warfare 2 multiplayer anymore. Warzone 2 is a mess. I don't like it. There's bad server latency. The time to kill is too fast. The movement is horrible. There's no buy stations. And even when you can get to a buy station, what you need isn't in there. I never even get my loadout most games. You know, it's 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 bad. It's bad. I was forcing myself to play it and to like it because I don't know, I just I I just wanted to get better. I watch a lot of these professional streamers and in my crazy mind I think I can get to that level or not. I just want to improve. I want to get better. I want to be effective at the game, but it's not happening. It's not happening because I don't feel compelled to play the game at all. I'm not playing it at at all at all. Oh, and there's no one-shot snipers. I think Warzone forever changed once they nerfed the Swiss and car in Warzone 1. I really stopped playing the game a lot after that. And the fact that there's no one-shot snipers in Warzone 2, that's one of my favorite things to do is to snipe. So if that's gone, I just, I have no desire to play the game. And I haven't for weeks. I'm not even playing Rebirth anymore. I actually went and reinstalled Caldera and I'm playing that on Warzone 1. And that's a lot more fun. It took the massive screw up of Warzone 2 to actually make me appreciate Caldera. So I'm back on Caldera. I've been playing some of that. That's good. That's good. I'll probably play that next time I stream. But I want to thank Activision. You know, I've been hopelessly addicted to Warzone and multiplayer, modern warfare multiplayer since it came out. And I don't play it at all anymore. They've done such a horrible job with Modern Warfare 2 and Warzone 2 that I'm not playing it at all anymore. So thank you. Thank you, Activision, for curing me of my Warzone addiction. I am forever grateful to you. I just want to go back and play some more one-player games. You know, there's a there's a new Quake map pack out called Dwell. If you haven't played that, play that. That It's really good. There's a chapter two out now. I want to jump into that. I want to finish the Doom Eternal DLC. I want to finish more of Elden Ring. I got to play the Dead Space remake. I'm going to get back into some single player games. You know, I don't want to worry about this online competitive stuff as much. And we have to talk about the Last of Us finale. Are you watching the Last of Us on HBO? You really should be. It's an excellent show. I've really enjoyed the first season. I think they've done an excellent job overall with what they've done with the material. And I think the changes that they made make a lot of sense too. Even they're good. I like it all. 
It's all good. And I think the ending of the season one was perfect. They basically did exactly what's in the game, but you don't need to change it. That ending is perfect. I'll never forget playing that game for the first time and that ending. I was just like, wow, excellent, excellent stuff. And I hope this show ushers in a new era of good TV and movies inspired by video games. We need that. We need that. Like what they've done with comic books. Remember comic book movies used to be, they used to all be horrible, right? Well, they're all horrible again, but there was a good run in there of good comic book movies. And I want them to do the same with video games because there's a lot of good material out there. Imagine a Red Dead Redemption movie that was like actually good. I mean, come on. Imagine a Final Fantasy VII movie that was actually good. Imagine a Resident Evil movie that was, well, the first one was okay, but, you know, imagine a really, really good one. We need that. I'm looking for that. And hopefully, The Last of Us show on HBO will kick all of that off. I think it's going to start. I really do. Last of Us Season 2 is going to be Part 2 of the game, and I think they're going to split it into two seasons. If you've played The Last of Us Part 2 of the game, you know why. I'm not going to give any spoilers here, but it does make sense. So I'm looking forward to it. So let's end with a musical recommendation. How about that? Here's my recommendation this week. Now, stick with me here. It's a band called Clowncore. It's a two-piece band. It's like avant-garde, jazz, noise, almost some hip-hop influence in there. I don't remember who was on the show that mentioned this band, but I thought it was like I thought it was like a type of music, the way they described it. I didn't realize it was a band. And then it started popping up in my YouTube feed. And I was like, oh, Clowncore, someone on the show mentioned this. The live show looks unbelievable. You really need to check it out. I'm going to end the show with their song Flat Earth, which has been stuck in my head. And look, the recordings are fine, but the live show is really where it's at. So listen to the song and then go to YouTube and watch the live show. You need to see it. You need to see it to believe it. So that's it for this week. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening. and. Until next time.